Hi folks, this is Rich Palazzo from Thinking Accurately Education. And uh, today we're going to read the third chapter of our book, The Bible, Christianity, and American Government. Uh, the third chapter is titled God, God's Plan for Self-Government. Uh, Genesis 3 details the historical account of the fall of Adam and Eve and how they were turned out of paradise, the Garden of Eden. Adam became a farmer, and later, in Genesis 5, 28 through 29, we see that Adam, Adam's descendants, the children of his son Seth, even hundreds of years later, were still farmers. Each man was commanded, in Genesis 2, 24, to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. These were new commands added to the earlier ones uh, recorded back in Genesis 1, 28 and 29. So each family was to establish a new independent household just as people do today. Think of Little House on a Prairie or the 1991 movie, Sarah Plain and Tall. Homesteads spread out from each other several hours or perhaps a day's travel, but not totally isolated from each other. Though always honoring their parents, the new couple would no longer be subject to them. I looked up the word subject, uh, in Webster's 1828 Dictionary, and it means being under the power or the dominion of another. Uh, so in taking on the new responsibilities of managing this independent household, the husband and wife became, for all intents and purposes, their parents' equals. It became the man, the husband's responsibility to provide for and build a home for his wife and their children. The wife was his companion and helpmate. See Genesis 2.18. Uh, 2, the husband father answered directly to God and was directly responsible to him for how he lived, how he treated his wife, and they were both responsible for how they raised their children. They were to owe no man anything, and they were totally free to enjoy their God-given rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Each family tilled their own land, tended their own field, garden, and orchard, though they were also free to pursue their individual gifts and talents. One man, for example, who lived by a stream, might build and operate a mill. Another person might choose to operate a loom or a forge. But if a miller or a weaver or smith did not do the work he had promised to do, his customers had no government to go to for their satisfaction. Business dealings were done by covenant, which is an agreement between two parties that was considered to be enforced when necessary by God himself. You know, uh, Thomas Jefferson once wrote 
in his 1787 notes on the state of Virginia, those who labor on the earth are the chosen people of God, whose breasts he has made his peculiar deposit for substantial and genuine virtue. That well describes uh, the culture of the early patriarchs, but it wasn't easy to be a farmer. You had to get up early in the morning to begin a long day of work, and you had many responsibilities. If you don't milk the cow, it will stop giving milk. If you don't feed the chickens, they will stop laying eggs. If you don't plant your crops, you will have no harvest. In short, if you don't work, you won't eat. And if you're a day's travel from your neighbor's house, you'll have to learn how to do a lot of things for yourself. Think of that old uh, that movie from 1984 with Mel Gibson. Uh, it's called The River. If your roof leaks, you learn to mend it yourself, just like in that movie. If your equipment needs to repair, you learn to repair it yourself, just like in that movie also. In other words, you become self-reliant. See Proverbs 6 through 11. Many of Seth's descendants were the kind of people that Jefferson would later say possessed substantial and genuine virtue. Yet, at the same time, another culture existed. The descendants of Adam's other son, Cain, which began with the building of the first city. See Genesis 4, 16 and 17. Contrast their lifestyle to Seth's farming community. If your roof leaks, you call the landlord. If something needs to be repaired, you take it to the repairman. If your tools need to be sharpened, you go to the hardware store. If you need bread, you buy it at a bakery. In other words, you become dependent. Now, in his same notes on the state of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson wrote this. Dependence begets subservience and venality. It suffocates the germ of virtue and prepares fit, tool, fit tools for the designs of ambition. And in the Bible, we read this uh, from Psalm 55, 9. It says, For I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around on its walls. Iniquity and trouble are also in the midst of it. But Seth's descendants looked at the glitter of urban life, and they saw the beautiful starlets and the famous personalities. They traded away what they now saw as their simple, unsophisticated farms. But at what cost? They chose not to see the difference in the values of the culture they were becoming a part of. One of Cain's descendants saying this, admiring and wanting to imitate his famous ancestor. From Genesis 4:23 through 24, I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. 
even though Cain had murdered his own brother, his descendants still thought of him as a great man and tried to follow in his footsteps. And Seth's descendants closed their eyes to the violence and strife and closed their ears to the cries of the oppressed, even though they knew it was wrong. And when the great flood came, both cultures were destroyed, except for eight people, the family of Noah. And after the flood, even Noah went back to farming. However, the people, Noah's descendants, began again to build a city known as Babel. See Genesis 11. William Penn, a wise man and and the founder of the state of Pennsylvania, once said, The people who will not be governed by God will be ruled by tyrants. That's from his 1668, uh, The Sandy Foundations Shaken. And the Bible in Genesis um, 10, 8 through 12, tells us about the world's first tyrant. His name was Nimrod. Why do you think that the Bible tells us that Nimrod was a mighty hunter? What do you think that has to do with his rise to power? In any case, he was what the King James Version of the Bible calls a man of renown. See Genesis 6.4. And the Bible quotes Jesus as saying something about men of renown. It's in Luke 22.25. Jesus said, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. You know what the word lordship means? They exercise dominion over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. Here's a quote from John Locke, a famous English philosopher who was often called the father of liberalism. He said, A man may owe honor and respect to an ancient or wise man and gratitude to a benefactor. But all these give no authority, no right to anyone of making laws over him, the person they do the, uh, they act as benefactor for. John, that was from uh, the 1689 Second Treatise of Government. It sounds to me like Locke was agreeing with Jesus' criticism of the great men of his time. And later, Alexis de Tocqueville, a man from whom we have quoted before, gave this warning to his friends in America. Uh, in It was the Democracy in America is the name of the book. It was published in 1840. And he wrote, it would, st- it would seem that if despotism were to be established among the democratic nations of our days, it might assume a different character. It would be more extensive and more mild. It would degrade men without tormenting them. I looked up the word despotism in Bing, and it says the exercise of absolute power, especially in a cruel and oppressive way. Remember that de Tocqueville was a Frenchman, 
and he was writing in the 1800s, he went on to say, it would be like the authority of a parent if, like that authority, its object was to prepare men for manhood. But it seeks, on the contrary, to keep them in perpetual childhood. For their happiness, such a government willingly labors, but it chooses to be the sole agent and the only arbiter of that happiness. It provides for their security, foresees and supplies their necessities, facilitates their pleasures, manages their principal concerns, directs their industry, regulates the descent of property, and subdivides their inheritances. What remains but to spare them all the care of thinking and all the trouble of living? He goes on to say, Thus it every day renders the exercise of the free agency of man less useful and less frequent. It circumcises the will, circumcises the will, circumscribes the will within a narrower range and gradually robs a man of all the uses of himself. The principle of equality has prepared men for these things. Now, this is a Frenchman writing this. They had just gone through the French Revolution. He says, The principle of equality has prepared men for these things. It has predisposed men to endure them and to often look on them as benefits. After having thus successfully taken each member of the community in its powerful grasp and fashioned him at will, the supreme power, the government, then extends its arm over the whole community. It covers the society with a network of small, complicated rules, minute and uniform, through which the most original minds and most energetic characters cannot penetrate to rise above the crowd. Now, this was written by a Frenchman in 1840. The will of man, he wrote, is not shattered, but softened, bent, and guided. Men are seldom forced by it to act but they are constantly restrained from acting. Such a power does not destroy, but prevents existence. It does not tyrannize, but it compresses, enervates, extinguishes, and stupefies a people, till each nation is reduced to nothing better than a flock of timid and industrious animals, of which the government is the shepherd." That's from the D Democracy in America, uh, dated 1840. Uh, the Bible says this in uh, Ecclesiastes 9, 16 through 18. Wisdom, it says, is better than strength. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. And it says this in James 3.17, The wisdom that is from above is first pure, 
then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. What can we do to gain such wisdom as the Bible is talking about? Well, we can listen to the words of those who have gone before us and learn from their experience. Maybe Thomas Jefferson, Alexis de Tocqueville, and William Penn have something they can teach us, even us, in the 21st century. Uh, once again, folks, uh, my name is Rich Palazzo. This is Thinking Accurately Education. Uh, we have a blog at thinkingaccuratelyeducation.com. Uh, we have a podcast. Uh, you can find it uh, on Podbean and on Apple uh, Podcasts. Uh, we also have now a new YouTube channel, so you can find us on YouTube. Uh, you can look for the uh, book, The Bible, Christianity, and American Government. Uh, thank you, folks, for listening. Uh, this is intended the idea behind all of this is to reach people on both the left and the right, because we're not talking about politics here. We're talking about the basis of our government. This is what these are the people who were originally responsible for speaking into the government that we created 200 years ago. So I just want to thank you folks for listening, and I just want to wish you a great day.